0: If you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 4, John 4, and I want to read verses 20 to 24 to begin our time. Beginning in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, it is almost impossible to miss the main theme in these verses. Just in five verses, we have some form of the word worship used ten times. And in this text, Jesus is going to teach us about the non-negotiables of worship. And in so doing, he's going to challenge the way that we might have become accustomed to thinking about this concept. It is evident today that by and large, the church, you've probably noticed, it tends to limit the idea of worship to what we're doing right now on the Lord's Day when we gather together for what is appropriately called a worship service. But not only that, we tend to shrink our idea of worship down even further, don't we? To just the first part of the worship service, what we just did uh, with the music and praise. Just to illustrate this, uh, when someone says, how was the worship today at your church? What is it that they're asking? Well, more times than not, they are asking, how was the music? How were the instruments, the choir, that, that time that you sang before we got into the sermon? How was the worship today at your church? Well, th- that is one example of many of, of how the church today has allowed the culture, uh, the evangelical culture, to inform us more about doctrine than the actual Bible does. One author I was reading on this topic had a helpful way to put it, as he was referring to Scripture's testimony all throughout redemptive history. He writes this, There was never any monopoly on the word worship for singing, particularly given objects of idolatry. All right, so think about those Old Testament passages where it says, You shall not worship an, an idol. He goes on to say this, When was the last time anyone assumed that an Old Testament reference to someone worshiping a false god meant that the idol was being sung to? Well, certainly that's a form of worship. We're we're not denying that. But it's not the default assumption we make when we read those passages. And yet, why then do we make that assumption today with God? That's a good question, and it's a fair question, because Nowhere in the New Testament do we see that this idea of worship is limited down to the music and praise time in our worship services. We would recognize that's one of many legitimate expressions of worship, but the New Testament doesn't even really use that language music and worship. We get that more from, from the Psalms in the Old Testament. But not only have we become accustomed to thinking about worship, defining it differently than the Scriptures. We've also become conditioned to think that the end result of worship is terminating on ourself. We are the ultimate evaluator of worship. We are the ones who determine whether worship was good or bad. Isn't that implied in the question, how was the worship today? Well, implied is we get to evaluate it. We assess it. We determine if it was good or bad. And often it's a very shallow evaluation, isn't it? if our emotions were stirred, if we felt a connection with God, if there was passion in our praise and music, well, the worship was good today, and then it shifts from good to great if the songs that were sung were the ones we want, that we like. Well, then it was great. Well, this one I would suggest is an even greater error, a more dangerous trend than limiting uh, worship to music, because it makes us the object. It makes us the focal point of worship. Whoever assesses the worship, whoever determines if worship was acceptable, that's the one being worshipped. And we know, biblically speaking, whose job is that? It's God's job. It's obvious, biblically speaking. He determines if the worship was good or bad, acceptable or unacceptable. I think after studying this passage, I have a I have a new go-to response when someone asks me, how was the worship today at your church? My new response is going to be, I don't know, I haven't heard from God, right? I, I wouldn't know unless I heard from God himself because I'd have to evaluate not only everything externally that's happening, I would have to know the inner spiritual condition of everyone's heart to know if it was acceptable to God. Think about Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, both attempted to worship the Lord in offering a sacrifice. And Cain could have thought all he wanted, oh, the worship's good right now. This is great. I'm offering up an acceptable sacrifice. Yeah, the worship was acceptable. Well, it's irrelevant what Cain thought. All that mattered was the Lord's attitude, the Lord's approval or disapproval. And so all that to say, when we seek to understand worship biblically this morning, As is sadly and often the case, we find ourselves swimming against the popular and confused and ignorant tide of evangelicalism. What is worship? How would you define that? Somebody says, what is worship to you? Well, a very simple definition is it's a response of honor and reverence for God. Filled out a little more, I like Pastor Todd Murray's definition of worship, a faith-filled response. To God's revelation of Himself that always expresses itself in an offering. Now, I'm going to repeat it because I I like it so much. A a faith filled response to God's revelation of Himself that always expresses itself in an offering, a, a sacrifice. What I like about that definition is it transcends redemptive history. Right? Sure, yeah, the sacrifices and the offerings have looked different. Uh, from Adam and Eve until where we are right now, but the, principle, the principles there are, are what's always been true of worship. Notice how that definition is consistent with what we've studied recently in Romans twelve i I'll just read it for you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So notice a faith-filled response in that passage. A response to what? Well, Paul says the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. What is that? Romans chapter 1 through 11, the mercies of God in the gospel. And notice there's an offering up, a sacrifice. In this case, our body, our, our entire lives offered up as an expression to God in humble dependence and obedience to him. Interestingly, in Romans 12, there's nothing about music, nothing about praise, Nothing about a church service, although those things are obviously included in worship. And we're going to see the same thing in our passage this morning as we turn back now to John 4, 21 to 24. Jesus is going to give us the non-negotiables of genuine worship. The non-negotiables of genuine worship. This passage is unrivaled in the New Testament with its emphasis on worship. We don't get this many details anywhere else, and yet, Think about this question. What comes to your mind when you think of these are non-negotiables for worship? How would you fill in the blank if if someone asked you this? In order for worship to be genuine, it must include... Well, now let's see if our non-negotiables line up with Jesus. The first non-negotiable in genuine worship. It accepts the exclusive authority of Christ Jesus. It accepts the exclusive authority of Christ Jesus. Notice verse 21... Of John 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, for this point, we're just narrowing in on that first phrase there believe me. He is calling her to trust him. The Samaritan woman, as we're going to see in the context here in a minute, she is in the process of coming to salvation. She has just asked him in verse 20 about worship. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. It's very relevant for her, and it's also full of controversy, as we're going to see. But before Jesus answers her, he gets to a fundamental starting point, a fundamental principle. Woman, believe me. It's a similar statement to what he makes in other times in the Gospels. It's a little more filled out. Truly, truly, I say to you, when he's speaking authoritatively, and uniquely as a son of God. So we can look at these words, believe me, they're just a more personal, condensed form of that authoritative language that he uses elsewhere. So he's telling her first and foremost, you have to view me as credible. You have to operate with the conviction that I have exclusive authority to speak on this matter of worship. Believe me. Now you have noticed that we are parachuting into a context here. So let's consider... What's behind this response? What's going on here? When he states in verse 21, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Well, he's responding to her implied question from verse 20. And this is all revolving around massive theological controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. If you glance back at verse 9, you can see it come out. He had just asked the Samaritan woman for a drink from the well. Notice how she responds to him in verse nine. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John adds a little parenthetical comment for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She is shocked that a Jewish man is asking her for a drink from her own water pot. Major breach at so many levels. And we don't have time to get too detailed with this. I want to try to condense it down as much as I can. But basically, with the Jews and the Samaritans, there were strong differences in the areas that always involved national conflict, political, uh, ethnic, and religious. They had all three of them going. And it all, it all goes back to when the kingdom of Israel split, split into the northern and southern kingdoms immediately following Solomon's reign as king. You remember Judah and Benjamin, known as the southern tribes of Judah? They stayed loyal to King Rehoboam, Solomon's son. They stayed within the Davidic dynasty. The northern kingdom were the ten tribes. They went north. They became known as Israel. Eventually, Samaria was identified as the capital city of Israel in the north. Samaria eventually would go on to become known as the whole region. All right, so there's the political factor. You have a divided kingdom. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. On top of the political factor, ethnicity then. Long story short, Israel, the northern kingdom, invaded by the Assyrians. Over time, they intermarried with one another. And the southern tribe of Judah recognized that and said, you're no longer true Jews. You're no longer pure Jews. We are the pure Jews down here in Judah, and you are now basically Gentiles to us. So there's the ethnicity factor. On top of that, there's a religious factor. As I just mentioned, the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians, thus contaminating their religion. They they tried to worship Yahweh alongside the worship of idols and, and false gods. Furthermore, over time, the Samaritans limited God's revelation to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they had their own version of it, the Samaritan Pentateuch. And so you can see all these factors at work, politically, ethnically, religiously, the Jews and the Samaritans had a great amount to fuel their animosity toward one another. And so all that's in the background here as Jesus seeks out this woman, this Samaritan woman at the well. And the more she interacts with him here in chapter four, she eventually concludes this strange This strange Jewish traveler, this mysterious man who's speaking to me, he's at least a prophet, as we see in verse 19. How'd she come to that conclusion? He knew things about her life that he couldn't have known, apart from supernatural knowledge. And so she knows he's a prophet and she wants to put him to the test. Okay, you're a prophet. Solve this long-standing theological controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. Notice verse 20 again. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, from the Samaritan perspective, limiting God's revelation to the first five books of the Bible, they could make a case that God had attached a significance to Mount Gerizim and the area there. That's where Jesus and this woman are interacting at this very point they could look back and they could, they could point to Abraham, Jacob, and the patriarchs of, of Israel, all offering expressions of worship in that location. But from the Jewish perspective, it was very easy to demonstrate Jerusalem. That's the epicenter of worship. That's where the temple should be. That's where the sacrifices should be. Because after Revelation continued, after Deuteronomy into Joshua, it became clear Jerusalem is where the Lord authorized worship to happen. And so notice how Jesus begins his response here, woman, believe me. So before he even gets to the issue, he presupposes his own authority to define genuine worship. This is not a call to trust in him for salvation. That's implied later on in this account. This is rather a call, you have to receive my words as divinely authoritative, and you have to go beyond that of a mere prophet, right? Jesus had many things in common with With faithful prophets before him but he was no mere prophet why because no prophet could say truly truly i say to you or believe me he was a a uniquely a divine missionary and so there is no genuine worship if one does not accept the exclusive authority of christ jesus that brings us to the second non-negotiable of genuine worship it's authorized by scripture It's authorized by Scripture. Notice the rest of verse 21. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now you might be saying, saying, all right, where's the part about it being authorized from Scripture? It seems like the point should be worship is no longer confined to any particular location. Well, that is true, but he doesn't say that quite yet. All he states right here is this fierce debate between the Jews and the Samaritans, it's going to be obsolete very soon. It's going to be irrelevant. But he doesn't say where true worship is going to be just yet. Before he answers the question, notice what he says in verse 22. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So it's going to be obsolete. It's going to be irrelevant very soon. But I'm going to side with the Jews. I'm going to take a side in this great theological debate, and I'm going to to indict the Samaritans. Verse 22, you, plural, you all worship in ignorance. How can he say that? Because as a people, they have taken away from God's word. They edited God's word, and they set up an alternative form of worship. The, The Samaritan religion is what we would call today a cult an unorthodox branch of Judaism at the time. Why would we call it a cult? Because cults are good at one thing, really, removing from revelation, adding to God's revelation, and editing God's revelation. The Samaritans were guilty of two of those. They took away from God's revelation. Nope, you only spoke in the first five books, the books of Moses. And then they edited the word of God. You remember I said they had their own Pentateuch, a Samaritan Pentateuch. And in, in rare cases, but in significant cases, they went in and they would change language. They would change it from Mount Ebal to Mount Gerizim. That, that's one example in Deuteronomy that they would do. Why? To justify their, the location of their alternative temple here. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's getting that on the table and he's saying, by the way, Judah... Jerusalem, that's where worship should be. You worship in in ignorance. Notice the contrast in the second half of verse 22. We worship what we know. So he includes himself with the Jews, the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's affirming why our worship is according to knowledge, why it's not in ignorance. He gives the reason, into verse 22, for or because salvation is from the Jews. Salvation. He doesn't just say revelation. He doesn't just say the Messiah or anything in particular, but a very broad term, salvation, is from the Jews. And I think this is a condensed form of what Paul said in Romans 9.3. If you keep your finger here, just glance over at Romans 9 for just a minute. Romans nine verse three. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And now here he could just say the same thing Jesus does, who belongs salvation. But he gets specific, notice. To whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving and the law, and the temple service, that's worship. And the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. So salvation and everything pertaining to it comes to the world through Israel. And therefore, any religion, any form of worship that puts itself in opposition to those things is false. So back to John 4. What Jesus is saying here is at least the Jews in the southern kingdom, yeah, they may be apostate, (laughs) they may be hypocrites, but they're worshiping where they should be. They're insisting on Jerusalem, and that's appropriately so. Notice the language there again in verse 22. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. He's not even talking about the object. He's not talking about true God, false God yet. He's just talking about the whole system of worship, the things pertaining to salvation. So you've cut yourselves off from God's revelation, and therefore your worship is characterized by ignorance. That's why I labeled this point, genuine worship is authorized by scripture because that is the main difference. The the Jews in the Southern Kingdom could go to scripture, God's full revelation, and say, no, this is why the temple is in Jerusalem. This is why you have to worship there. Now, I noted previously in the introduction that we should not limit our understanding of worship to what we're doing right now, a, a worship service when we're gathered together. But at the same time, it is worship it is a worship service, appropriately we call it that. We are gathering together to worship God as the people of God. And so I thought we could take this principle and put ourselves to the test and say, is what we're doing, how we're doing it, why we do it, is it authorized by scripture? Can we demonstrate from scripture why we do what we do, or is this just tradition? Is this just preference? Well, Let's, let's highlight some things that we do. Why, why do we pray multiple times in the service? 1 Timothy 2.8 details the men, the leaders, praying when the church gathers. Why do we take time after that first song to read Scripture, to stand up and honor Scripture and read? 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Why do we emphasize and devote the amount of time to preaching that we do? Why do we make that really the feature of the worship service? Because that's what's emphasized in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to exhortation, to teaching. Paul tells Timothy to be a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And of course, 2 Timothy four two, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Why do we have music and sing praises? After all, the New Testament never says... That actually is worship, so why do we do it when we gather together like this? Well, Ephesians 5.19 indicates we are to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in our, in our hearts. We can't do that if we're not gathered together singing and praising God. Why do we take a monetary collection every week on the Lord's Day? Well, because we're following the pattern of what Paul encouraged the Corinthians to do. First Corinthians sixteen verse two on the first day of every week there's the Lord's day. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. It's not a command to do it that way, but we are following a, a pattern that we see in Scripture. Why do we have service times? And why are they generally the same length <laughs> and the same order? Well, first Corinthians fourteen thirty three, God is not a god of confusion. He's not a God of disorder or chaos, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Why do we have two services that are identical to one another? Why don't we have a contemporary service for younger people and then a more traditional service for for the older generations who might appreciate that? Why don't don't we do that? Why don't we cater to different age groups and do that in in our corporate worship service? Well, because so many times in 1 Corinthians 12, you have that language, we are one. We are one body. Many members, but one body. And therefore, if we started to have two different styles and two different services, what does that do? It doesn't promote oneness. It doesn't protect that unity and oneness. It starts to create two different bodies. Why do we take the Lord's Supper together and not individually in our homes? Well, because in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians 11, it is very clear the Lord's Supper is a corporate event. It happens when we gather together. Now, certainly we're not saying there's a cookie cutter method of how to do a worship service. There's freedom within all the principles that I just highlighted. But the point is, if we're going to call it a worship service, it must be authorized by scripture. We have to be able to point to passages in context and demonstrate why we do what we do. And so this is the second non-negotiable in genuine worship. It's authorized by scripture. That moves us to the third non-negotiable, back to John 4. The third non-negotiable in genuine worship, it is the activity of believers alone. It's the activity of believers alone. And the idea with this point is only Christians can worship God. Only Christians. You must be a Christian to worship God. Let's look at what Jesus says here in verse 23 but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. Now there's a phrase that typically gets overlooked when we try to understand what this means. And that is the beginning there in verse 23 notice an hour is coming and now is. So the hour that's coming and now is this is the era of redemptive history that is inaugurated at the coming of the son of God to earth. We might call it the transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Why is that important to note here? Because whatever the following verses mean, that that language, in spirit and truth, it has to include something that is a new reality unique to the New Covenant moving forward. What is the new reality? Well, notice it's to be in spirit and truth, that identical phrase repeated twice there. This is not saying that no one was worshiping God previously. Jesus is not saying worship is now beginning here. Rather, what he's saying is this is the dawn of a new era of worship. It'll overlap with worship in the Old Covenant, but there will be some distinctive features about it moving forward. All right, and so let's take some time and look at these terms here, because this is a potentially very confusing passage. So I want to I want to do my best at explaining the terms here and to help us understand this. To worship in spirit, at a minimum, that means the only worship that God accepts is worship from the inner man, worship from the heart. And that's been a consistent principle all throughout redemptive history. It's always been that way. The Lord has never accepted any worship where one met the external criteria while there was unrepentant sin or, or, or driftingness or, or their heart was far from him. For example, David, Psalm fifty-one, sixteen. you remember what he said in his, in his confession? For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You can see this theme littered throughout The prophets, Isaiah 1 is an example, if you wanted to look at it uh, at some point, where the Lord rebukes his people for their hypocritical external acts of worship while their lives are inconsistent with his character and will. And so the point is, external worship, external expressions of devotion, while one has no love for him, no affection for him, not trusting in him, that's always been repulsive to God. He's never accepted worship where the heart has not been engaged. And so at a minimum, back to our passage in John 4, worship in spirit must include the idea that genuine worship is from the heart. It's ultimately an inner man reality. What about that second idea, worship in spirit and truth, and truth? Well, again, at a minimum, it has to mean worship in accordance with God's revelation, worship informed by knowledge, what he requires, how he reveals himself, It has to include that because that was one of the major differences between the Samaritan religion and Judaism in Jerusalem. You could also think of all of the warnings about idolatry and false worship in the Old Testament. It was always according to the truth in that sense. All right, and so both of those ideas are included here in John 4. But remember, we have to go beyond them because Jesus is saying an hour is coming and is now here when worship will take on this form. And so while not neglecting what worship has always been, what is this new reality that it's being transformed into here at this point? Now, some of you might be thinking, I know what it is. It's the Holy Spirit. That's the new reality. We must worship God in the Holy Spirit and truth. That's not a bad guess, but it's a wrong guess. We would rule it out because of verse 24. Notice, God is spirit And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Whatever spirit means in the first part, it means in the second part. And it doesn't say God is the Holy Spirit. It says God is spirit. What's that that saying? It's a qualitative statement. It's stressing the nature, the essence of God. God is spirit. He is a spiritual being. Therefore, he must be worshiped in the spiritual realm. You, you must relate to God, a spiritual being, as a spiritual being. And John, in this gospel, he's used similar language previously. If you look back at John three verse six, uh, this is Jesus interacting with Nicodemus. Look back at John three. Jesus says, "That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit." Why does he say that? That which is born of the flesh is is flesh. Because Nicodemus is saying, okay, I have to be born again. Well, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again a second time? And Jesus is saying, even if you could do that, it wouldn't matter. (laughs) You're still starting off as flesh. That's the highest you can get. And so he continues, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The offspring of the spirit of God are spiritual in nature. They're given a new nature. It's referring to spiritual life. They're no longer dead, but alive to God. And I think that's the reality Jesus is referring to over in John 4. To worship in spirit, to worship God who is spirit, you must be a spiritual person. You must have spiritual life. And so it's related to the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Spirit is the one who indwells us as believers. But it's not equated with the Holy Spirit. This is the reality that is true for those in the New Covenant. You remember the language, Ezekiel thirty I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, an inner transformation, a new nature. You will be a spiritual person. Now, re- returning back to the second half of John 4, that phrase there, in spirit and truth. What's the truth referring to? Well, again, we recognize this is something that is now happening as a result of the coming of Christ. It's new moving forward from that point. What is the truth in John's gospel? How does John use that term? Look back at chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. What is the truth in John's gospel? Not just revelation from God, but the revelation of God in Christ. This is why Jesus can say later on in John's gospel, John fourteen six: I am the way, I am the truth. I am the truth. I am the full, ultimate, final. I am the ultimate reality, the substance that everything has been pointing to. I am the truth. And so when we understand truth this way back in John 4, you can see what Jesus is saying here, how he's defining worship. J.C. Ryle put it this way. This means worship through the one true way of access to God without the medium of the sacrifices or priesthood, which were ordained till Christ died on the cross. He continues, When the veil was rent and the way into the holiest made manifest by Christ's death, then and not till then, men worshipped in truth. Before Christ, they worshipped through types and shadows and figures and emblems. After Christ, they worshipped in truth. Now let's go back to John 4 and put both of these pieces together and understand that phrase, in spirit and truth. Verse 23, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's, it's a package, by the way. It's not in spirit and in the truth. It's in spirit and truth. They're distinguishable, but they're inseparable realities. It's a package deal. And so what's he saying? True worship is spiritual. It's Christological. It's Christological. To worship in spirit and truth is to worship as a spiritual being through the truth, who is Christ Jesus. Don Carson writes this, The worshipers whom God seeks worship him out of the fullness of the supernatural life they enjoy and on the basis of God's incarnate self-expression, Christ Jesus himself. In modern language, we might put it this way. A true worshiper, in order to be a true worshiper, you must be a Christian. You must be a Christian. Members of the new covenant are the true worshipers. So what does that mean? If one stays in the Samaritan religion or they stay in Judaism after the coming of Christ, they're a false worshiper. If one attempts to worship God trusting in their own merit, they're a false worshiper. If one attempts to worship God through any particular religion, they're a false worshiper. The real, genuine worshipers are going to be identified and known not because they go to a particular place, a particular location, like Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, not because they associate with a group of people like the Jews or the Samaritans, not because they go to a particular church, not because they do any type of external activities, evangelizing, keeping the commandments of God, reading, praying, serving you can be doing all those things as a false worshiper if you're not a Christian, if you haven't been born again, if you're not trusting in Christ. All those things are expressions of false worship. Why? The only worshipers are those who are spiritually alive in Christ Jesus. That's why we can say that genuine worship is the activity of believers alone. Jesus is not saying it's an option. He said you must worship in spirit and truth that brings us fourthly and and uh, lastly to uh, uh, the, the fourth non-negotiable in genuine worship it aspires to please god not man it aspires to please god not man in other words the focal point of genuine worship is god the concern of genuine worship is god and for this one we're going to back up and just highlight a few details here Back up to verse 20, and notice when the woman speaks about worship, there's no mention of God. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What occupies her mind when she thinks of worship? Where's her focus? People? Places? There's no mention of God in verse 20. Back up to verse 12. Here's what she says to Jesus. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Again, who's great in her eyes? The father's, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Where is her focus in her religion? Anywhere and anyone other than where it needs to be, God. In fact, it would appear as if she struggled to think any higher than man, which is what false religion does. I draw your attention to that so we can appreciate the contrast in Jesus' answer. You've probably already noticed the emphasis, but notice she keeps talking about the fathers, plural, and Jesus keeps talking about the father when he talks about worship. Verse 21, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Verse 23, True worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For such people the father seeks to be his worshipers. Why emphasize it like that? Why repeat it like that? Because he's helping her to see that how you think about worship, your focal point is revealing what you worship. What you're preoccupied with in worship is what you're worshiping. So she finds common ground with many in the church today who who are more concerned about what? Worship than God. And in some cases, they're worshiping worship. (laughs) Uh, When we think about worship as a means to an end terminating on ourselves, we are guilty of that very thing. When we think for the worship to be good, I have to feel a certain way. I have to sing these particular songs. The sermon has to be this way. The church has to be this way for it to be worshiped. We're worshiping ourselves. To quote Pastor Eric Alexander, When we believe we are to be satisfied in worship above God being glorified, we have made ourselves the object of worship. It's not to say our emotions aren't involved. It's not to say there isn't joy and satisfaction in Christ. Absolutely there is, but we should never be seeking those those things. Those are byproducts. Those aren't what we seek in that. So sometimes we're guilty of worshiping worship, our emotions, ourselves. Other times the church can call something worship, but it's actually worshiping its own influence, its own evangelism. All right, this is the great error of the 20th century on into the 21st century up until right now. Sadly, we, we have not yet recovered from this error, and it, it continues to confuse the world about the gospel and damage sheep on a massive scale, and that is when a church ministry exists and has, quote, worship services for the seekers and unchurched. Many look at that still today and think, well, that's a legitimate way to do ministry. They're, they're not catering to people who know the Bible. They're, they're catering more to people who are the unchurched, the seekers. Well, if that's what you're doing, then just stop calling it a worship service. Call it evangelism. Call it an outreach. But when you call yourself a church, you gather together, you call it a worship service, but everything you're doing is geared toward pleasing Visitors, pleasing unchurched, who are you really worshiping? It's not love that is on display in those environments, it's arrogance. Because man is saying, I can set the terms for worship, I can redefine worship, and ultimately I'm doing it to please and impress and and draw in man without any concern for God. Look at the end of verse 23. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers, now this could be functioning in a, in a couple of different ways here. One would be the emphasis is on the father seeking sinners out and transforming them into the worshipers that he wants them to be and that is a that that is true theologically, right we We know that not one of us. Not one of us who's in the Lord here this morning would be here had God not sought us out and drew us to himself. We we know that. Romans 3.11 says no one seeks after God. God is the only seeker in the scriptures. But another way to understand this would be the word for seeks here is simply that of desire. Glance glance over at John 5 just for a moment. We'll come right back. John 5.18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were, and now here's the same word, seeking all the more to kill him. So you can see it's desire. It's an intense desire. They're wanting all the more to, to kill him. And, and so back to John 4 now, if we understand that word seek like that back here in our passage, it helps us see the connection between our worship and our motivation. Who are we trying to please? Notice how it functions in this argument. But an hour is coming And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks, desires to be his worshipers. Genuine worship is preoccupied with what? What is pleasing to God? What does God want? That has to be the focal point for it to be genuine worship. It must aspire to please God, not man. And as soon as that motive drifts from that, it's no longer Genuine worship. So these are the four non-negotiables of genuine worship that have come out in this passage. It's not comprehensive. He's not giving us everything we need to know about worship, but certainly non-negotiables to help, to help shape our thinking in all the areas that this text doesn't speak on. By way of review, the four non-negotiables, it assumes the exclusive authority of Christ Jesus. Believe me, he says to her. It is authorized... By scripture, it is the activity of believers alone. You must worship in spirit and truth as spiritual people through Christ. And it aspires to please God, not man. God must be the focal point. God must, Worship must terminate on God and not man. Well, let's close in prayer together. Father, we are reminded of the words of Peter when he said that as living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we recognize we have the unique privilege and obligation to worship you in spirit and truth. We also recognize that we are those who worship and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, as Paul would say. And so we, we end our time or end our time in your word by reflecting on on how you've sought us out and transformed us and, and given us a heart to fear you and walk in your ways and, and in response to that gracious work in our lives, we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship. We thank you for our time in the word together. In Jesus' name. Amen.